hello, and welcome to another episode of DFT's Dungeon. My name is Daniel Terry, and this week on the podcast, I'm going to be talking about a record that I think is the embodiment of being misunderstood. It's frustrating when people judge you strictly on your appearance alone, or in the case of a band or an album, how you sound, or what your album art looks like, or what your genre is, even if it's a made-up genre. And this issue exists in a lot of bands out there, right? I mean, everybody thinks death metal bands only talk about gore and death and murder and psychopaths, when we actually have a lot of death metal bands out there that talk about philosophy or the life cycle of planets and universes, or in one very specific case, space slugs. And I think this idea couldn't be more true than it is with Horse the Band. But there's a twist. What if it isn't even a band that came into the world with a specific purpose in mind? What do you discover when you look into an album like The Mechanical Hand that not only does the band musically represent something nostalgic and close to our hearts, but simultaneously represents all of the intense pain, helplessness, self-loathing, fear, and a general state of being at war with yourself? This is a record that is constantly trying to convince you it's something that it isn't, while at the same time trying to figure out its own inner strength in real time. And for me, this album fully embraces the nostalgia that I was expecting when I bought it, but it also unearths all of the painful growth associated with that nostalgia. But before we get into all that, I've got a few podcaster things to say. If you guys like this podcast, please make sure that you're subscribed to it so that you don't miss new episodes when they come out. And I'll have links to all the social media platforms where you can follow the podcast in the show notes of this episode. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. My faith in social media is kind of starting to wane a little bit. It's nearly impossible to self-promote a podcast on these platforms because they're basically designed to bury content that would lead people away from those platforms. You know, Facebook doesn't want you to click off Facebook, right? So... I decided to start an email list through Substack, and I'll have a subscription link to the newsletter in the show notes of this episode as well. So if you sign up for that email list, then you're going to always receive my updates no matter what, instead of Facebook just showing like 10% of you guys my posts. And on top of that, I still have shirts, stickers, and hoodies available on my podcast store, and those are going to be available for the rest of this year, but going into 2024, they won't be available anymore. And lastly, if you guys need to get a hold of me to ask questions or tell me how you feel about the podcast or a specific episode, feel free to send me an email at dftdungeon at gmail.com or you can join the DFT's Dungeon Discord server and hit me up over there. So now let's talk about Horse the Band and what I personally got out of the mechanical hand. And for the first time ever, I'm actually going to tell it in chapters. Chapter 1, Birdo in the House of Boo. When I was about seven or eight years old, my dad signed me and my brother and sister up for Taekwondo lessons at this local elementary school. And I'm not sure if he was just trying to like tough us up or something like that, 
or just the overwhelming popularity of martial arts-based media that was sweeping the country in the 80s and the 90s. The thing I thought was interesting was that the lessons were not just for kids, but for adults as well. So we would stand there in this elementary school gym like three to four times per week, and we would learn different fighting techniques with a mixture of kids and adults. And a little something about me at that age, I had a tendency to hyper-focus on things, especially when I was learning a new skill or just learning about something that I personally thought was interesting. And there aren't a whole lot of kids that are younger than 10 years old that don't think that like martial arts are like really, really cool. So I hyper-focused in a lot on the various stances and forms that we would have to reenact for our instructors over and over again before they would approve us and they'd move us on to the next lesson. And if you did a really good job and you completed a whole portion of a lesson, you might even be able to move up a belt. And it was one of my earliest memories of taking a personal kind of pride in the knowledge that I had and wanting to impart that knowledge to other people. So naturally, when we learn something, we want to use what we've learned to affect some kind of change in the world around us. Because as a small child, it's kind of hard to do that. And I remember getting to the point where I was so interested and so hyper-focused on what we were doing, I kind of did the annoying little kid thing and started offering unsolicited advice to the other students whenever they would fail at something. And I didn't really discriminate between kids and adults. And I didn't think about the fact that maybe there were adults in the group that didn't appreciate their technique being critiqued by a little kid. So one night I told one of the grown men that his starting stance was wrong and that's why he was having trouble transitioning into his next stance and i don't even remember if this was the first time i'd spoken to him or not and i'll never forget this he turned around and stomped right over to me and grabbed me by the shirt with both fists and he lifted me all the way off the floor eye level with him and he said you need to shut the fuck up right now you little shit or i swear to god i will rip your fucking head off then he let me go and i hit the floor crying See, no matter how confident I felt in offering advice to people to help them, this grown-ass man decided that I needed a reminder that I was just a small child and I had no power and no right to criticize anything that he, an adult, was doing. little and I wasn't the one in control and I never forgot it and of course my dad didn't see it but the instructor thankfully did and he went out and he got my dad involved and the man eventually ended up apologizing to me and I just avoided him pretty much the entire rest of the time I was at Taekwondo but I remember driving home that night with my dad and him telling me that I needed to stop always talking to people about things that they had no interest in talking about and I argued with him and I said, well, I was just talking about Taekwondo and, and he was doing it wrong and I just wanted to show him how to do it the right way. And he was like, well, sometimes it's smarter for you to just stay quiet and let other people make their own mistakes. So thanks, Dad. Message delivered again. Because it doesn't matter what I think. Because in the end, I have no effect on the world around me and I can't change anything. And so in listening to a song like Birdo by Horse the Band, 
On the surface, it sounds like an obvious Super Mario Brothers 2 reference. You know, with the title and the reference to eggs and throwing them back. And when Horse the Band hit the music scene, they were very quickly labeled a Nintendo core band. Whatever the hell that means. And it was kind of their fault. I think they, like, jokingly referred to themselves as Nintendo core at one point. And so everybody just grabbed it because people love inventing new genres. And it was also assumed by the song titles and the video game inspired synthesizer that this band was dedicated to mixing early childhood nostalgia with this spastic and chaotic modern indie music. And I'll admit, the first time I heard this song, I thought that too. I thought that for a long time. I I did an episode of Discography Discussion in 2020 talking about Horse the Band, where it's pretty evident that I didn't actually get it. But after doing a little bit of homework on this song in particular, I was floored with realization. Their singer Nathan once said that this song was about his childhood. And the references to eggs being that he had a stepdad who forced him to eat eggs even when he didn't want to. And it turned into an argument between his mom and his stepdad that led into a domestic violence situation. And that single story recontextualized this entire record for me. And suddenly the way that I related to this album changed dramatically. Birdo is a song about helplessness and more directly, the kind of helplessness that we feel when we're small and insignificant and we can't really change or control the circumstances that we're in. We want nothing more than to be able to throw it back into the faces of our oppressors, but we can't for such a long time after. If you absolutely need a reference to video games here, I will say the video games at this age were the only place of solace that I could find. If we're going to talk about Birdo or Bowser or Ganon or any other video game boss, I would say that for a lot of people who grew up around the same time that I did, video games were our first experience with having to overcome a significant obstacle to survive. Video games were comforting to me at that age specifically because they had defined rules and I could overcome anything through observation. But it would take a long time before I could translate observational behavior replication into my real-life interactions with other people. It was pretty rough for a while, which I'll get into. I think overall, I was a little bit less afraid of the world before that Taekwondo incident. I'd never really been physically threatened or restrained like that by an adult before, and it totally broke me at that age. Because something my parents used to do all the time when I was a kid was leave me home alone on the weekends. And I mean, not for the entire weekend, but for example, they would leave and tell me they were going shopping and be back later, but they'd leave at like 11 a.m. and not come back until like 7 or 8 that night. Before that incident, I used to think that that was awesome because I could play video games or watch TV as much as I wanted. But after the incident, I was painfully aware that I could be snatched up and carried away by somebody bigger than me at any time. So I used to hide myself in my room with all the lights out in the house and I acted like nobody was at home. (laughs) 
So every time somebody rang the doorbell or knocked on the door or I heard a funny noise outside, I would just sit there terrified because I thought somebody was going to like break the door down and come in and take me off somewhere. And even as an adult, like I'm sitting here in my basement typing this script with the door in view. It was the only comfortable way I could set up my desk but still be able to see who's coming down the stairs or through the front door. Which makes a song like House of Boo super relatable as it describes a person, likely a child, experiencing a home break-in in the dead of night. And that hard to contain screaming terror you feel when your safe place is no longer your safe place. So on those lonely days and nights, I would just hide in my dark room with the TV on at a very low volume, jumping at every sound that I heard. No confidence that if something were to happen, that I would have any control over it, which also might've explained my fascination with the Home Alone movies when I was a kid. Chapter 2. A Manatee Has a Rusty Glove. Flashing forward a few years, my terrified little kid self somehow was able to make it all the way up to middle school. I think all kids feel a little bit different growing up when they have to intermingle with all these other social groups. It's like all these kids from different backgrounds have to learn how to get along after just being thrown into like a, a jar and somebody putting the lid on it. And I was no exception. The hard part for me was that I had so many interests that I was hyper-focused on. Video games, music, or even stuff like fixing up the old family computer. And while I found a few other kids who were interested in those kinds of topics, it became pretty apparent that the way in which I would enthusiastically ramble on about those topics was not appealing to anybody who was unlucky enough to get stuck with me talking to them. You guys remember the movie A Christmas Story where there's this creepy little kid in line behind Ralphie and then Ralphie says something to him and the kid just smiles for a moment and goes, I like the Wizard of Oz. And then just keeps smiling. I like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that was me. Except it was about, you know, The Legend of Zelda or Super Mario Brothers or Dragon Warrior. I just couldn't understand why people didn't love these things as much as I did. Maybe they did, but I just didn't have the social skills to communicate my love for these things in an appealing way. Which is, like, totally different than now, right? Right? And I would try all day you know, to, to talk to other kids and just try to try to be social or try to somehow get them interested in the things that I was interested in. And then they wouldn't and I would get picked on and I would get made fun of and I would get upset and I'd go home and swing on my swing set in the backyard and have all of these embarrassing fantasies. Fantasies about me having some deep conversation with another kid in my class. And then all of a sudden, they would love and accept me for all this insane knowledge that I had amassed. That my teachers would appreciate me for my ability to recognize patterns in music and literature. And how I could find deeper meanings behind complicated stories and even movies. And I used to read books like Ender's Game, which reinforced this idea that I was somebody special. 
and that one day I would show the world and be recognized for it. But, you know, then it would get dark and I'd have to go inside and go to bed and just know that everything that I fantasized and dreamed about was just not the reality. Because I wasn't the really cool person in those dreams. I, I was an annoying, very young teenager who had no social skills, and I got picked on relentlessly for it. Girls were never going to find me interesting. The other boys were never going to take me seriously. Even the kids who had the same interests that I did would pass me over in a second to hang out with somebody less annoying. I felt like I wasn't physically or mentally appealing to anybody. I had nothing to bring to the table, and eventually I started hating myself because of it. And the song Manatine embodies nearly everything that I was feeling at the time in a way that I haven't really encountered in other music. The lyrics read, my face on the TV, my voice on the radio, that's me in my dreams. When I open my eyes, I see I'm a piece of shit, a worthless coward, a vapid whore, a moralless refugee covered in sore, a blithering sea cow lost in his dreams. Nobody likes me at all. And I know that feeling of self-loathing isn't unique to me. I think we all felt it at that age, but most of us are too ashamed to admit it in such an honest way. I knew I needed to do something to make a change in the world around me because it didn't seem like I could do anything to change it, even though I was older, but it never stopped me from trying to. See, when you play a video game, the most important skill you can learn isn't your reflexes or your natural born ability. It's the skill of determining through trial and error what works and what doesn't work. You can't play a puzzle game aggressively and you can't play a turn-based RPG relying solely on your reflexes. You have to figure out the best course of action for every given situation. And that was the one skill that I was hyper-focused on learning. It's funny, a few months ago I was on the Roach Coach podcast talking about Silence by Blindside, and I opened the episode telling Lauren and Matt that I absolutely loved that Blindside record growing up. But now that I knew that they were also going to be listening to it, suddenly all the things that were wrong with it or wouldn't be considered cool in 2023 started flooding my brain, and I was actually kind of ashamed of it in a weird way because I knew that other people would be listening to it. And it was that kind of energy that drove what I consider to be a major transformation for me in middle school and leading into high school. And it all started out with me sitting alone at lunchtime. I started sitting closer to random tables next to other kids, but not really interacting with them. I kind of just low-key watched and listened to what they were talking about. What the things the other kids thought were cool and how people told jokes to each other. What jokes hit and which ones didn't and what kind of tone people use, their inflections, the spacing of words, their hand gestures, and the type of eye contact that they used. And I started keeping a physical notebook of like the average likes and dislikes of certain kinds of humor and conversations. What the hot music was, what video games people were playing, what TV shows they liked. 
I did this for the better part of my seventh grade year. So if you interacted with me at all during that period of time, you can guarantee that some piece of how you acted or what you said made its way into this collage of a personality mask that I was making for myself. I talked a little bit about this in my Incubus Make Yourself episode from season one. If my only real skill was gathering and analyzing data and then hyper-focusing on that data, I had to figure out how to use that skill to my advantage because it was the only one that I had. So much of it was driven by self-loathing and feelings of inadequacy that I wanted not only to use this data to increase my social standing with people, but to also downplay or replace entirely those things that I loved that might have been seen as less desirable to other people. The song A Rusty Glove means so much to me now as Nathan describes this process as removing circuit boards, you know, pulling old boards out, putting new boards in, trying to make himself less like a robot and more like a regular human. And it describes an insane series of trial and error where he attempts to forge all of his parts into a single new image. And he desperately sings in the song, maybe I'm not falling apart, but I'm falling a lot. Once upon a time, I had a broken heart. Once upon a time, I just had a heart. I limped when I was wounded, so I replaced my parts. I'm not a robot, but I've got a mechanical hand. I can steal the stars and put them back again. And that's exactly what I did. I changed so much about myself and my personality because I used the skill that I had, my mechanical hand, to create this mask to make everybody think that I was just like them. But over the next several years after I bolted that mask to my face, I was easily able to start making friends, go out on dates with girls. I emphasized things that I thought were cool, and I was finally able to have the life that I thought that I wanted. I had achieved success by artificial means, and as decades went by, I had my share of struggles, but I had eventually forgotten that I was even wearing a mask at all. The mask was the me that the world saw, and I finally had what I thought I wanted, to be like everyone else to finally have done something that would have an impact on the world around me and actually change the circumstances that I was in. Chapter 3, The Softer Sounds of Exploding Suns. Decades go by, and I'm a grown-up. I've worked jobs, so many jobs, so many that I can barely even remember all of them. I played in multiple bands, I made a ton of friends, I got married, I started a family. Sometime around the end of high school, I found out about Horse the Band and their album, The Mechanical Hand. And I remember being thrilled at this like spastic energy that the band had. 
how they could go from playing catchy rock to like intense grindcore and then go into a dance beat and just over and back again. And they always seem to bring something fresh and new to the table. My buddy Tyler, who was the original keyboardist in our band End of Destiny, introduced me to Horse the Band, and he was obsessed with learning everything that he could from their keyboardist. The band's sound was infectious, and I thoroughly enjoyed listening to this record over and over again on long car trips, to the great annoyance of my passengers. I remember playing Taken by Vultures on loop during a 35-minute drive with my boss when I was taking him to the airport. And I saw the band play a total of two times, and both times it was incredible. Just absolute chaos and pure fun embodied on stage. It's always great to see a group of people who mutually enjoyed the band as much as I did, and we're all crammed together in this one tiny space. But I have a confession to make. At that time, I really didn't get this record at all. There's a big difference between enjoying something and actually getting it. So when I first discovered Horse the Band, I was still living behind a mask, never revealing my true, awkward self to anybody. As a matter of fact, I had kind of forgotten all about that. The mask that I wore was who I was. I knew people were into nostalgia and Nintendo games and hardcore at the time, so I was into that stuff too, but only only because it was cool, not because I like actually really loved it, even though, even though I did. I just had to sort of hide how much I loved things and how much I would hyper-focus on things. It, it's better to act like you're only mildly interested in things, right? And so I had a superficial appreciation for Horse the Band and so many other things. I don't think the mask started slipping until around two years ago or so. I can't even identify the moment where it started slipping, but like most of my stories, it ended up happening when I was at work. I'd been working a job in 2021, and I was happy enough to be working there. There were cool people there, and I got along with most of them pretty well. I was still a little bit rough around the edges, but overall, I got along with people just fine. But the first thing that struck me about this job was that the work that we did there came extraordinarily easy to me. Like, to the point where it felt less like work and more like a fun mental exercise. And day after day, I would look around at my fellow employees and see them either struggling with it or just apathetically sitting there collecting a check. And the strange thing, though, was that once I realized what the majority of people were doing... I did what I always did. I kind of started doing the same things, playing on my phone on the clock, working on podcast stuff at work, taking longer breaks, wasting as much time as possible during the day so that I could go home and do whatever I wanted. But the thing that really ended up disturbing me was hearing people constantly complain about how bad work was and how stressful it was. And for the first time in probably two decades, I just couldn't relate. didn't get it the work was like very mentally satisfying to me and and i wanted to do it and i found it interesting but it was it was the one thing that i couldn't really talk about with anybody because nobody else really liked it or enjoyed it and i started seeing co-workers getting fired but the group dynamic didn't change 
I started seeing the group for what it was. It was a herd that was either unaware or just unconcerned about their impending destruction. And of course, by destruction, I just mean like lack of employment. It's not, it's not the end of the world. And for the first time, the mask really slipped because all of this masking and vying to fit into the group was no longer in my best interests. And so in the attempt to fit in and change my situation, I found that my solution was to never stand out, never change, never challenge the world around me and just go with the flow. Wanting to affect a change in my surroundings, I had locked myself back into helplessness, and it made me fucking sick. And the song Softer Sounds describes exactly that. A bunch of sheep in a field right next to their own slaughterhouse, blissfully unaware that they could be wiped out at any second. And like the sheep that painfully jumped the fence at the end of the song, I knew that I had to make a new plan, but this time it wasn't going to be a new mask. I had to go back and analyze and hyper-focus on what skills I had that would be more appropriate for this new setting I found myself trapped in. I'd love to tell you guys that I just heard, you know, another Horse the Band song and then, you know, had this sudden realization that I needed, but unfortunately, that isn't how reality usually works. It took a really long time to grasp hold of what I was feeling and what to do about it. So I mainly just concentrated on my work. I stopped slacking off and I started engaging with the work that I found mentally satisfying anyway. And as the days, weeks, and months started to tick by, I got so focused in that I didn't notice my environment changing around me. I was getting noticed by my management. They started showing me productivity reports and were blown away at how much work I was getting done every day and started asking me to train new workers as they were hired. What I had done without noticing it was revert back to collecting data and hyper-focusing on my daily tasks and interests, taking an inventory of what skills were appropriate for each given situation, and slowly but surely the vibe of the workplace started changing. With the mask fully gone, I finally remembered what it was about me that made me who I am and how I got here in the first place, and I weaponized it for the bettering of myself. I felt like a superhero who had just awakened from a centuries-long sleep. And in this moment, second stop and I burst with clarity, a wealth of love and hate, gone blank, for I finally remember my fucking name! Chapter 4, The Black Hole. As time went on, my coworkers started asking me for advice on how to better optimize their workflow. They were trying to catch up to me on productivity, and the entire environment had shifted directly as a result of the effort that I was putting in. And instead of being shunned for my hyper-focus, for the first time in my life, I was actually being celebrated for it. 
I was given the tools I needed to continue improving and going above and beyond. And before I tell you the rest of the story, I want to make it clear that I am not a supporter of hustle culture, and I don't believe that people should have to work hard 24-7 to make somebody else rich. That isn't what I'm pitching here. In this specific case, I had received multiple promotions, as I talked about in my other episodes of the podcast, for my work and my accomplishments. I enjoyed doing this type of work. And everything that I did was really an attempt to streamline our processes so that we didn't have to work as hard in the future. I just had a brain that was wired in such a way that I got a lot of personal satisfaction from completing my tasks in the most accurate and efficient way possible. Just like a speedrunner is going to analyze every aspect of a game to figure out how to get through it the fastest. And all of this continued on to the point that just this last month, me and my team were asked to do something impossible. We were asked to complete three months worth of our actual production work in just one month due to some pretty poor planning mistakes from our higher ups. And despite the faith that my managers had in me and my abilities, this was the first time I was faced with opposition in almost a year. They told me that what we were asked to do was impossible and that there were ways that we could push the work off into later months to accommodate for the workload. But see, there was a problem with that. This went completely against my mission to make things easier for us because like a credit card balance that work wasn't going to just magically go away we we'd have to eventually do it because to me that was like giving up on world 8-3 of super mario brothers and then never rescuing the princess why would we go through that effort only to quit and that wasn't an option for me so just like in every difficult situation from the past, I sat down and analyzed the data. I took inventory of not only my own skills, but of the skills of the team that I was leading. And I came to the conclusion that what they were asking was absolutely possible. And I made a plan to overcome that obstacle because I wasn't a little kid anymore. For the first time in longer than I can remember, I was faced with a difficult situation. But now I had demonstrated a mastery of controlling the situation around me. I would rather try my best and fail than to take the easy way out and push the work away. Face the stars or the abyss, but not nothing at all. So we got to work. I had total faith in our skills as a team. So honestly, I knew that we were going to be able to push the tide in our favor. that I can happily say that we did it. We actually ran out of work to do in the middle of the last day of the month. We had accomplished what we had been told was impossible. See what the mechanical hand was not in fact encouraging me to do was to dwell in the past. Whether that past is pain or glory, it's no longer relevant to our current configuration. 
While the album starts with a song about an insurmountable obstacle, it doesn't dwell in the pain of the past. By the time we get to the black hole, we realize that it is only by honing the skills that we have learned that we can move forward and accomplish our great task, whatever that may be. And I, for one, look forward to playing the next level. Also, I didn't mention this before, and I didn't really know where else to put it in the podcast, but the song Octopus on Fire is a fucking perfect song. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of DFT's Dungeon. Like I said in the intro, my name is Daniel Terry, and I just want to take this time at the end to personally thank you for listening to this podcast. I know that sometimes these episodes can be a little bit weird, and you might go into them expecting them to be a straight-up album review, but some albums just have such a relational effect on me that I just feel compelled to share how these albums relate to me in my own life. I hope music does the same thing for you as well. Thanks again for supporting what I do, and I will hopefully see you here again next week. pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, though. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. It was terrible. Get him away! Hey, boo! Boo!